2022 has been a difficult year for investors across virtually every asset class, and commercial real estate markets in the U.S. and Europe have been no exception. Heading into 2023, the outlook remains unclear. We're reconsidering everything right now. We're slowing down. We're pausing. I'd say anything that people have been buying over the past couple of years at razor thin cap rate spreads, which goes across industrial, multifamily, in some of these markets where you've had explosive rent growth over the past two or three years, um, you know, there's some real exposure in some of those really tight areas that might sound contrarian. They were the safest. Um, but when you move cap rates from a two and a half, three by 50 to 100 basis points, that is a massive impact on value. That was Joe Gorin, head of U.S. real estate equity acquisitions and portfolio management at Barings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion. Coming up on today's show, my colleague Greg Uticone moderates Barings' 2023 Global Real Estate Outlook, garnering the latest views from the firm's experts across equity and debt markets in the U.S. and Europe. Hello, uh, my name is Greg Utico, and thank you for joining the Bearings 2023 Real Estate Outlook. Um, I am Managing Director and Head of Client Portfolio Management for U.S. Real Estate. What a year 2022 has been, uh, macro issue and real estate issues. Um, from a macro perspective, um, one filled with distinct challenges, Fed rate movements, inflation, uh, lingering effects of the pandemic, Russia, Ukraine, um, and as specific real estate issues, uh, structural changes to the use of office space, uh, emerging asset classes, data centers, life science, um, and more recently, a lack of price discovery, uh, frozen capital markets, uh, and the dreaded denominator impact affecting many institutional investors. But as we know, real estate is not a local business, it's a hyper-local business. Um, and in our experience, sophisticated investors are not only looking at markets from the top down, but also from the bottom up. Uh, so today, our panel with that in mind is intended to give you a different and unique perspective um, than you might be hearing in other similar forums. Uh, we want to understand and provide guidance on what is really happening in local markets that can help inform you as you move into 2023. Today, I'm very grateful to be joined by four members of my Bearings Real Estate team, and I'll allow everyone to introduce themselves. Valeria, do you want to kick off? Thank you, Greg. Uh, yes, I'm Valeria Falcone, and I'm Managing Director and Portfolio Manager uh, and Head of Value at Investing Europe. Severine Momila-Finer, I'm a Managing Director and I'm a Portfolio Manager working for Core Strategy in Europe. Hi, folks. Uh, Joe Gorin. I am a Managing Director and I head up uh, U.S. Uh, equity real estate uh, acquisitions and portfolio management. I'm Nasir Alamgir. I head up our real estate debt portfolio management team uh, here in the Americas. Our goal today is to give you a unique perspective of what is going on in the market, uh, dictated by our, our on-the-ground experts in their respective markets. So we're trying to give unique perspectives on what is really, really happening. And so with that in mind, uh, let's get going. Um, obviously, 2022 has been incredibly difficult. What unique aspects of this market and how many of these aspects in this market are keeping us up at night and, and why? Um, Severine, maybe I'll have you kick off. Well, it's true that what we are facing uh, for almost the last three years is, is pretty unpredictable, right? Um, and in any case, if you have told me three years ago what uh, we are going to leave for the next three years, I would probably have not believed it uh, at all. Um, what is very complicated here that we are not facing a real estate um, crisis. We are facing uh, an inflationary crisis, right? Due to external shock um, we had over the last two years. Um, and that, that has an impact on our industry. The first shock we had is a shock on demand um, due to the pandemic, uh, and especially the lockdowns we had following the pandemic that has completely disrupted the, um, the whole economy. We have 20% more demand in projects and goods and 25% less demand on services. That's the first shock, uh, I would say. The second shock is really the energy crisis. And that's very more European, I would say, specific. But that's two shocks make that we have facing a very strong inflation in the US and in Europe. And um, that cocktail means that we are in this kind of situation, in situation today, right? And 
I've been quite shocked by the fact that the government have clearly denied that situation at the beginning. And the reaction coming from the central bank have been pretty late. I mean, I would say March for the U.S., and more July for, for the Central European Central Bank. Um, but what is clearly complicated for us is all the uncertainty around the macro, because clearly this is not real estate crisis. Everything around real estate is pretty positive in terms of demand and everything. But so for me, what is keep me uh, awake at night is all this uncertainty and that volatility that are going to last for sure within, for me for the next 24 months. Thanks for this, Everine. This year, some perspective from you from the real estate debt side. Yeah, and I think I'm going to grab onto a little bit of what Severine was saying with respect to inflation, but I'm going to look at it through the lens of of, uh, of consumer spending. So we're entering into the holiday season here in the U.S. Nearly 20% of all retail sales take place in the months of November and December. So this is going to be a very telling sort of statistic as as we go through the next uh, several weeks and again the next two months. Um, on average, we've seen retail sales grow 4 to 5% over the last decade. But once we got to the pandemic, those sales skyrocketed. So in 2020, uh, retail sales grew by over 9%, and in 2021, over 13%. If you look at inflation alone, you'd expect 2022 sales to be up 6 to 8%. Uh, and that's pretty much in line with forecasts from the National Retail Federation. But that means U.S. consumers are going to spend nearly a trillion dollars this season. Now, like a lot of data today, that's both good and bad, right? It's good because consumer spending drives economic growth. But at the same time, it's bad because it's going to lead to persistent inflation. And that's going to require tighter monetary policy. And the Fed is going to choke the economy into recession. So those are the things that, again, maybe it's not necessarily keeping me up at night, but it is something that I'm spending a lot of time focusing on over the next several weeks uh, or the last two months of the year. Joe? Well, I'm gonna grab on <clears throat> to what Nasir said. Um, if it's what keeps me up at night, and I think they're doing what they have to do, but the Fed the Fed keeps me up at night because um, we just don't know how far they're gonna go with these Fed fund rate <clears throat> um, increases. And that just creates uncertainty in terms of pricing equity. Um, you know, you've got a lot of maturities coming up in 2023 the average rate of a CMBS loan, you have to assume, is <clears throat> maturing at about four and a half percent. And the new debt, if you can find the new debt for it, it's easily two to 300 basis points over that. So that's really impacting our ability to price anything. It's, a, it's impacting our ability to price stocks. It's impacting our ability to price uh, real estate. It's hitting every asset class. And we're very rate sensitive uh, in, the, in the real estate sector. So, you know, it, it, also, you have to look at it when you're buying, we're not buying a lot. So that keeps me up at night. We have some dry powder. It might be a great time to have dry powder, but not right now. If you're an owner of real estate, how you value your real estate is confusing. Um, and you know what does keep me up at night is some of the private managers may not be marking their assets down fast enough. Um, some are, some aren't. So I think there's more, there's more equity devaluation to occur in the private sector. We've seen it in the public REITs. And then the sellers need to, you know, realize that the bid ask spread needs to narrow if there's going to be transactions. So um, there's a lot. There's a lot today to keep you up at night. It doesn't necessarily keep me up at night. It keeps us very focused on on how we're going to navigate uh, this this uh, challenging environment. Blair, some thoughts from you. Uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll recap what uh, you all say. You know, uh, if you look back in the last 24 months, I think that, um, you know, everything that could possibly happen has occurred you know, <laughs> as a reality. So pandemic, a war, unprecedented energy crisis, uh, uh, which has led to inflation. And I would add another point, which is, uh, at least for Europe, uh, the inability of the traditional instrument of central banks to function, because despite the sharp increase, and you might argue that maybe the, the increase is not sharp enough, uh, uh, the sharp increase in interest rate, uh, inflation is far from being under control uh, at all in Europe. And uh, therefore, you know, there's some question rising uh, uh, linked to this, which, which is, you know, when are we really going to see the peak of the consequences of everything that has happened out there? And, uh, you know, is the is really the recession the only medium-term consequence we're going to face? So we're going to see a more political uh, consequences to, uh, to, to, on the back of what's, what's happening today. Uh, 
and then, you know, um, finally, I think also that uh, uh, we should pose ourselves the question of, uh, are we sure that uh, uh, the, the target of 2% of inflation is going to be met anytime soon? Or maybe we'll have to think about a higher inflationary environment uh, for some years ahead. And so the answer to all these questions have a big impact on all our investment decisions. So what keeps me awake at night is that uh, I'm trying to understand how we best position our portfolio to resist through the storm. But most importantly, I'm trying to understand how do we take advantage for future investment. Valeria, picking up on what you just said, I mean, you're all portfolio managers looking to position the portfolio going forward. You know, there's been in 2021 and 2022, there's just been these emergence of either hot um, asset types like life science or data centers or hot markets in the in the in the U.S. There's smile states and sort of the migration from the from the gateways downwards. You know, from your perspective, you know, are there any sort of hot markets or property types that are giving you pause that you're looking to just sort of back off of? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, given the strength of that asset class, I think that uh, uh, logistic probably has been one of the biggest surprise in a way, not so much for the extent of the decompression of cap rate happening there, uh, but because the prolongation of uh, you know this situation is and will slow down some of the, in the short term at least, some of the fundamentals of the logistic market, uh, which is losing some momentum in a way, with declining purchasing power affecting sales. Uh, you know, we mentioned that, including online sales and distribution, you know, we might see some weakening of the fundamental of the logistic. Um, however, you know, it is very possible that this will be counterbalanced in Europe by an increase in demand from manufacturing company as a result of increasing uh, nearshoring business strategies. Um, so, um, you know, all in taking in consideration um, research indicates that the, the hit to uh, cap rate for logistic uh, will be um, in, in the region of 70 BIPs at, at the year end, taking average cap rate in Europe at 4.1%. Uh, but we had a peak in UK that saw more than 200 BIPs jumps in six months or a decrease of 60% in land value, for example. Now, all this is something that is, is there. We have to deal with it. But we also have to see that the online sales expansion is a no return path. And so new modern logistics space uh, will be developed uh, and will be needed to fulfill the demand. And also the wide variation of the internet penetration rates uh, uh, between European countries uh, means that there is a considerable expansion potential in the logistic uh, in the medium to long term. In this respect also, we also have to consider that the supply uh, has been short. And so in a way, you know, we see a, a weak uh, short-term situation in logistic, which again was the, the big uh, uh, difference uh, compared to a few months ago, but we still see very strong uh, medium to long-term fundamentals. Uh, and we believe that uh, those will persist in this asset class. Thanks, Valeria. Joe, any any hot markets or sectors that you're you're starting to you know reconsider? Well, I, I would say that um, we're reconsidering everything right now. We're slowing down. We're pausing. Um, in terms of hot, I'd say anything that people have been buying over the past couple of years at razor thin cap rate spreads, um, which goes across industrial, multifamily, in some of these markets where you've had explosive rent growth over the past two or three years. Um, you know, we're really uh, focused on on that, you know, potential economic slowdown and where rent growth is in the future um, and the moderation and the cap rate widening. So there's some real exposure in some of those really tight areas that might sound contrarian. They were the safest. Um, but when you move cap rates from a two and a half, three by 50 to 100 basis points, that is a massive impact on value. It's a lot more um, challenging than just moving at 50 basis points on a cap rate of 5%. Um, there is an area aside from those razor thin cap rate um, product types that have traded. Um, Life science has been trading at some higher cap rates, um, but it's also been trading at price per pounds on a fundamental investment basis at you know over a thousand dollars a foot, fifteen hundred dollars a foot, um, even eclipsing two thousand dollars a foot in markets like Boston and San Francisco. You've had a, a massive rent growth, massive demand. That white hot demand is slowing down. Um, venture capital is slowing down in life science, and um, and arguably people might have been investing at, at premiums to replacement cost, which is a fundamental no-no. 
Um, and so I think there's going to be a right sizing of some of those deals. We still believe in life science long-term and we're excited about um, the price disruption that may prevail here. Um, but I think that um, a lot of those deals that um, some of the, the life science capital and maybe some uh, folks who weren't as expert in the field invested in are going to be very challenged going forward, especially some of the conversions of physical real estate that really probably shouldn't have been underwritten that way. So I think there's some exposure in life science um, because it was just so white hot. Hmm. Severine, from your perspective, anything that you're sort of cautious on right now? Yeah, for the for the core strategy we have for Europe, we enter um, the residential market, the alternative market, um, a few years ago uh, in advance of the COVID crisis, um, as a diversification of our portfolio. And because we had, we saw that we had no hierarchy anymore um, in in yields between different assets. And it's true that residential has always offer very good, stable cash flow. You could also spread out your capex over the time, which sometimes you cannot do uh, for, for offices. So in terms of risk readjustment, it was very good. Um, but the more we were entering in that market, and we, we were also predicting some very strong CPI increase and rental growth. Uh, but the limit of the exercise when you when talking about Frezzy is that at the end of the day, the people paying is people like you and I. At some time, you know, you are facing some potentially insolvency of the people that are occupying this kind of, of, of housing. So we see a lot of people coming back to that market. And to make things happen in terms of return, they had to forecast some very, very aggressive CPI increase and growth, which is not sustainable anymore in that market. So clearly, yes, I do think that we are on pause on the raisy side, even if I do think that on the long-term basis, as soon as you have a very long-term view on this kind of asset, you are always going to win because the component on the capital value over the time is very strong on this kind of asset. On the other side, what I like on the raisy side is all what we call operational asset like you know PBSA or um, senior housing, around, everything which is around the house, which is extremely interesting. Here again, as soon as you get the right pricing around this asset, the right managers or the right, I would say, covenant entity, you are facing some very good and stable cash flows. And for core strategy, I would say, which is absolutely the best. So, but again, raise your alternative, yes, but right pricing with a long-term view. And for the moment, in any case, we have not seen the strong decrease or the enough decrease in pricing to get this asset sustainable uh, over the term at the moment. In this year, from from the debt perspective, you know, areas that you're focused on or, or backing away from? I'll probably echo what Severine was saying with respect to residential multifamily properties uh, being a hot asset class where we're probably taking a little bit, we're scrutinizing a little bit more. Like the asset classes we've all talked about, that there, there are pros and cons to them. And, and I think what's really interesting about this time in the, in the market is that there are still really good fundamentals for, for all of those asset classes. But in the multifamily space, we've seen an incredible amount of new supply coming online. There are over 900,000 units under construction right now. That's obviously a, a, an all-time high. There's obviously an all-time high in terms of demand too, which is offsetting that. But still, there's this incredible pressure on on rents, and and rents were up nationwide across all sort of subsectors of multifamily, 17% in 2021, and it's close to 6% so far this year. That's just not a sustainable growth pattern because effectively, right now, uh, nearly one in every two households is paying over 30% of their household income to rent, and nearly one in four is paying over 50% of their household income to rent. That, that's just, again, not a sustainable level. I don't think that means that people are going to move back home and, and sleep on mom and dad's couch, but it, it, it is going to present a problem. Um, offsetting that, obviously, mortgage rates have nearly doubled, if not more, uh, in, in some markets almost tripled. So it, even if you have single-family homes selling at 15 to 20% off of where they were last year, it still makes the cost of renting more affordable than the cost of buying. Um, maybe the risk really in the multifamily space here in the U.S. might be legislative risk. So if we think about this pressure on the average individual, at some point, you may see government regulation in terms of uh, implementation or expansion of rent regulation, which could be a, a real threat 
to, to the multifamily sector. So those are things to keep an eye on. Uh, obviously, not all markets are, are created equal here in the U.S. So we're looking at that hyper-local focus of location, uh, even within sub-markets uh, where those properties um, are attracting tenants and, and what's driving that, that demand. Thanks, Sister. So we, we we spent the the first fifteen minutes of of this of this panel talking about sort of the risks in the market. So does this popular sentiment remain that this is sort of a risk off period where you want core dollars or core euros to deploy? Is that the is that the prevailing sentiment, Valeria? Do you agree with that? Well, I mean, considering that uh, today it's very difficult to to price uh, uh, asset, uh, um, you know, actually in 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 the scenario in which we are, where uncertainty is ruling, as we've been hearing from uh, my colleagues, you know, probably the best risk-adjusted returns uh, stay in value at today, and there's there's a number of reasons for that. Um, I would say that first of all, uh, the price readjustment for value at deals. Uh, in the months ahead, uh, uh, should be quicker and wider, um, which means buying cheaper, which is always a good start uh, in in our job. Um, and then also, you know, uncertainty normally br- brings less competition. We saw that during pand- pandemic, uh, um, more off market deal has happened historically in, in such periods. So you know, this could could also translate into um, uh, more purchasing power um, and also allowing some time to optimize capital structure. For example, we've been seeing vendor loans or loan passporting uh, uh, getting around the higher cost of new financing, for example. And then at the same time, the, the overall lack of financing itself uh, will shrink future supply and will delay project, uh, which eventually again will result into an even tighter supply in all uh, asset classes. And we have been saying, you know, uh, just a few minutes ago, that uh, on the other hand, the fundamental, medium to long-term fundamental of logistic, of residential, they're still there. Um, and therefore, you know, um, in a way, you will see that, uh, um, uh, you know, the crisis will just uh, probably exacerbate one aspect, which is that, uh, uh, in general, demand is looking for higher quality asset, higher quality product. Uh, and this is for sure a big positive for value add strategies. But I think that in Europe, we also have another element which is playing a big role in value add. And this is that, uh, you know, there is a clear request from people to politics to seriously tackle the climate change. And this has uh, resulted into stringent um, energy consumption regulation, which are already in place and that will be in place soon, uh, you know, around Europe. Uh, so in real estate, this will imply that a big portion of the stock will either be non-leasable or in need of consistent capex to, uh, in order to be repositioned. This is a devastating element in accelerating uh, asset obsolescence, I think. So all this creates incredible opportunities for European managers, focus on value creation. Um, and in short, this could, uh, you know, you could, in a way, potentially buy cheaper in the next month and produce assets with very strong ESG credential that will respond to the new awareness of the demand in structurally undersupply markets, which, uh, again, you know, makes a very strong point for value add in future months. I'm sure you're having a challenge with this, too. I mean, in the U.S., we like value add. Um, the challenge is to get to the, you know, higher double-digit returns. You really need it on a levered basis and the debt is really challenging. How are you? How are you dealing with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, as I say, we we are seeing seeing a repricing, and the truth is that uh, you know it was quite difficult for us to buy stuff in the in the in the months before the summer because pricing were just not in the position we wanted uh, the price to be. So in this respect, we believe that in the next month we will see more room. And actually, you know, <laughs> it happened the same during the pandemic. Before the pandemic, it was difficult for us to buy, and then as soon as the pandemic hit, we had uh, some rebalancing uh, of the market, and we could take advantage of it. So 
we believe this will be will, will last longer because there are uh, stronger factors around it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the repricing is definitely something we need. In terms of financing, as I say, we have we're trying to be more creative in a way. Okay, uh, so in times like this, we can uh, try to put a different type of uh, of credit structure. But bottom line, what we're really really doing here, we're looking at unlevered deal because we see that the finance in this moment is not a creative for our business plans. Uh, so we concentrated on creating value, looking at unlevered return, and then you know uh, if we believe that those unlevered return are in the position of satisfying the interest of our investor, then we go ahead with the transaction. Otherwise, we simply have to drop. And once again, this lack of, of, of financing to me will just have to hit the uh, acquisition price in a way. So again, more more to come there. Um, you know, uh, we're not there yet, to be honest with you, uh, but we believe that in the next month we'll see more, more and more repricing, which will allow us to transact. Severina, are you completely risk off right now? We are actually. Well, the, the, the difficulty of the core strategy is that whole market is dead at the moment. Clearly, it's dead in Europe. You have no core deals coming through. You have no core investor working. They are all on pause and. When you look back at what happened on the, the whole market, on the macro market over the last, I would say, 10 months or 12 months, all these core investors have seen the, uh, you know, their portfolio decreasing very significantly with what happened on the fixed income. So their allocation in real estate, uh, as a consequence, has increased up very, very, very largely. Um, currently, which is difficult for us, is that what is the good moment, what is the best moment for us to come back on that core market, you know, uh, we are talking about repricing or yield shifting by, for, let's say, 50 bips, 75 bips in prime yields, whatever in office or logistics. Honestly speaking, we don't know because there is no market. So everything is based on negative sentiment at the moment. And when you have deals coming through the market and vendors and buyer talking together, the expectation of the vendor are not those of the buyers. So they are not selling. If you're not forced to sell, you don't you don't sell. So that we have that difficulty today where potentially we would like to come back because we have money to invest and we want to invest, but and in, in properties where we see the good fundamentals, but what is the right pricing at which I'm happy to invest? And is the shift in yields I can really see today? Is that enough with what I consider will be a good deal on the long-term side? Uh, on the core strategy. So it's 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 very complicated for us. Um, we are mostly buying with equity. So we are less careful about the debt, even if we do put debt in our in our portfolios, but much lower, of course, leverage than, than Valeria. Uh, and we are looking exactly at the same way Valeria is looking at ideas. I mean, we are looking at the right fundamentals. We are looking at the in-leverage uh, return and all that. But in any case, with a long-term view, which is probably better than the value outside, we have a long-term view. But still, we are very much focused on what is the best price today to come back on the investment side. And currently today, I must say, I don't have the answer because we have too much uncertainty in that market. Is, is an opportunistic strategy sort of just a bridge too far right now? Or is there deep value there for a for a, sort of a, an equity construction project that, that could be interesting? Joe? Um, I, right at this very moment, I think it's a bridge too far. Um, you know, if it, the, the debt just isn't there, um, the, the, and you know, if, if we're talking about a really dynamic deal that, you know, isn't 30 to $50 million, if you're developing, usually you're putting some more equity in, you know, we're an institutional investor. So we like to, you know, invest in deals that are 75 million and above, and we finance it and we can put 20 to $70 million of of equity to work. Um, and those larger deals are just hard to pencil on an unlevered basis. Um, we've bought some smaller deals. So I agree with Valeria on the value add side. You can find some smaller boutique deals and price them to unlevered for value add and opportunistic returns. I do think, um, and for those who are investors out there um, watching, you know, it's not going to be regular way, but it could be very interesting over the next two years. And I don't know when that's going to start. But banks are starting to take assets back, especially on the office side. So if you want to find a dynamic value add opportunistic return, don't talk to your commercial broker. Go talk to your bank. 
um, find those, you know, discounted purchase options. Um, you might get some, you know, uh, financing from seller financing. Um, it's going to have to be a very structured transaction that you're not going to compete for it um, the way we did even the past seven to 10 years. Um, we're going back into a distressed investing environment for value add and opportunistic. And I think it could get really interesting. Um, but you're probably going to be dealing more with banks than than equity counter counterparties at this point. Well, I agree with you, Joe. The thing is that when you have a distressed sell, a distressed landlord, you know, or lender, and with banks willing to take the asset back, it would probably not be the asset you want to buy. Well, not necessarily. I mean, you know, the the equity may not have a, an ability to invest in it, and the lender says, "I'll take the keys back," and is willing to you know, negotiate a structure on, I actually like those deals from a fundamental perspective, but they have to, but to your point, they have to match, you know, the physical location, um, the yeah. ability to create something special. Um, but there's a lot of equity guys out there. If it's a closed end fund that has no more equity to invest in the bank, they can't deal with their bank and they can't pay down the loan. A lot of those banks aren't in the business that we're in where we have the expertise to actually finish what, what the previous owner intended to do. They just overpaid for it or they got caught in, in, a, in a timing cycle. Basir, can you be risk on from a from a debt perspective or is there no need to be right now? Just curious your thoughts on risk on and, and just relative value throughout the capital stack from a debt perspective because it seems consensus is it's a great time to be a lender. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is I think debt in general is a risk-off strategy, right? Mm-hmm. With the exception of distressed debt. Uh, so, Yes, there are different risk styles across uh, real estate debt from core to opportunistic. A lot of times opportunistic is defined as construction lending or construction mes lending. Um, and there's value across that entire spectrum. If I were to just look at it insularly from a debt perspective, I think there's probably less relative value in core uh, versus those other asset classes. And a lot of that has to do with when you look at where the illiquidity premium is for core lending versus the historical illiquidity premium, it's either at or below that historical norm, where in the core plus or value add or opportunistic lending spaces, you're all you're looking at levels that are above historical illiquidity premiums. But net-net, I mean, the coupons are significantly wider than they have been for quite some time. I think what's really unique about the market for us in real estate debt right now is you're seeing a significant increase not only in base rates, but you're also seeing it in spreads. And that really hasn't happened for three or four decades. So a coupon that might have looked like 2.75% just nine months ago is now six and a half to seven percent, and that's across core, core plus. Uh, when you're looking at value add and opportunistic, you're looking at unlevered deals. So if you're looking at just a straight balance sheet lending versus a, a levered lending platform like a debt fund, you're looking at high single digit coupons in, in, in either of those spaces. Coupled with that, we're also actually seeing lower leverage, lower loan to values, lower loan to cost loans taking place today because there's that pressure on valuations. Right? We haven't seen enough activity in the acquisition markets, so people don't really know where values are resetting. There has to be some pressure on cap rates because that cost of capital is coming up. And if we think about the impact of a potential recession, whether locally here in the U.S. or globally, um, that's going to have, a, that's gonna have uh, a, a toll on valuation. So you're building in that cushion into your LTVs today. You're seeing a little bit more structure in loans, particularly in floating rate loans around interest rate caps making sure those were in place because the cost of those caps had significantly risen uh, over the last nine months or so. Um, but net-net, whether it's uh, core or opportunistic, real estate lending is is incredibly attractive. My two favorite spaces within that risk spectrum are probably the core plus and, and, and opportunistic sort of construction lending. And that's simply because in the core plus space, you don't have to take a lot of risk. It's usually lease up. You can do it in the safest asset classes like multifamily and industrial, and you're getting paid really attractive coupons. Um, on the opportunistic side, you know, instead of having to do construction mes to generate double-digit returns for some of these really large construction loans where there isn't as much liquidity in the market, uh, you can achieve almost that same type of return on an unlevered basis. Uh, What's going to be challenging is probably deal flow. So if you think about it, historically, acquisition financing is made up anywhere from 40 to 60% of a lender's pipeline. That's nearly gone. 
Um, and I think that, as Severine pointed out, in Europe, if you're looking at core transactions, non-existent. Here in the U.S., it's pretty much the same thing. So without that, with the absence of acquisition financing, uh, you're looking at our pipeline being down probably 30 to 35 percent in 2022. And that's clearly going to be the case for most of 2020-23. And depending on how hard this landing is, it could trickle into 2024. So that is a little bit of an offset, but I also think that there's pressure on lenders across the board. We've seen banks pull back, whether regional, super regional, or international. Uh, we've seen life insurance companies who are very aggressive in the first half of this year, certainly quiet down in the second half of this year. Uh, and we've seen the capital markets almost evaporate. So if you look at CMBS issuance, it's almost negligible. Uh, if you look at CRE CLO, it, it, it's faced a lot of pressure and was, was on the sidelines for many, many months. So again, if you have dry powder, it's a great time to be a lender, but it's probably not a good time to be trying to fill up all of your coffers. You want to pace yourself into this market because there's still a lot of uncertainty there. So you mentioned construction lending, which is interesting. How do you feel about um, inflationary pressures, supply chain issues? Some, to me, I would think that'd be a risk there that would be you know, troublesome. Thoughts there? Yeah, well, we're actually seeing um, some easing in the supply chain and some some flattening of, of construction costs. So they had been going up fairly significantly. I think the one thing that's really interesting about doing, going into construction lending into a recession is it is a little bit of a contrarian trade, but historically, those assets have performed the best uh, in terms of coming out of a recession. If you think about it, the average duration of a recession is less than two years. The last time it was longer than two years, you have to go back to the depression here in the United States. So from that vantage point, if most of these construction projects are taking 18 to 24 months to deliver, maybe industrial and multifamily take a little bit less than that. Uh, but again, if you look at the supply-demand fundamentals, they're generally very attractive. The other thing that you're doing in construction lending is building those projects of the future. I think that's particularly true in office when you look at the world of the haves and have-nots in terms of office rents and occupancy rates. The best-in-class properties that are prepared for a new, whether it's an ESG world or clean technology or efficiency, uh, those are the assets that are, that are going to succeed uh, going forward, and those are the assets that you're financing, generally speaking, uh, in the construction lending market. So it's actually a really interesting time, even with inflationary pressure. We're seeing some balance uh, with, with costs sort of flattening out. I'll just add, I mean, the, 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 Nasir and I work a lot together. We cross-pollinate and, and we, we share pricing, which really helps both of us. And the development deals that Nasir looks at, I look at and say, I'd like to do his, I'd like to be in his position for the equity. He's getting equity returns. You're getting double digit returns uh, and you're at 65% of the stack. Um, and so I'm not sure I want to be the equity or the equity may save itself, but it may not get that high teens returns they think they're going to get. But in this year's position, you know, I'd, I'd love to be doing the deals in my equity book that he's doing in his debt book. That leads me to to another question, Jen, Joe, sort of from your purchase, sort of head of portfolio management for the equity side of the house, you can't just sit on your hands, right? And so, you know, we talked about, we like value add dollars more than core, you know, Let's put it into practice. What is sort of one of the last deals you've done or liked or actually, you know, really underwrote in, in sort of diligence, sort of get it over the finish line? Sort of in this market, where are you allocating, if at all? Yeah, um, well, I, I tell people, you know, um, a lot of groups are, you know, they say pencils up or pencils down. I would say our pencils are halfway up. Um, so, you know, we have to be in the market. We have to be understanding where pricing is because of there's there's so much confusion We've got to have a huge cushion on the numerator, which are the basic you know, rent assumptions and where you're going to stabilize your income and the denominator. What is it going to cost you at the end of the day and where you're going to stabilize that? We need, we need a cushion everywhere. Um, so a deal that we actually did recently, we're looking a lot at, and we're a little contrarian, we're investing in tech office and, and life science, just as Nirsir said, you know, buildings of the future, the haves, um, and, and we're looking in the best location. So we recently closed on a life science transaction that... Um, is as two buildings and we ended up uh, pricing it in a process at a number uh, close to 70 million dollars and it was a, a, a public read as a seller um they said our number was about 10 to 15 million dollars too late um we dropped the deal 
we called them a few weeks later because we knew that they were trying to uh, uh, release some news at their September 30th earnings report. Um, so we we sensed there might be some price disruption. So we called the seller back, said, if we sprint to the finish line and we get this deal done by the end of the quarter, will you sell it to us? And they said, well, okay, did you move your number up? And we said, no, we actually moved it down another $15 million from where we were. So now we're about $30 million uh, lower than their ask price. And they said, okay, we'll sell it to you. And it was a great life science conversion play in the heart of Cambridge. Um, and so we had a huge cushion on the numerator, huge cushion on the denominator. And we took advantage of this price disruption, the devaluation of the public REIT markets, and the news that you know they need to raise currency in their market. So nothing we do is going to be regular way now. It's going to be from a, I wouldn't call this company a distressed REIT, um, but their currency doesn't work for this asset right now and ours does. So that was a, a recent deal that we did. Blair, what about you from, from your perspective? A, a recent deal? Well, I, I mean, uh, the the last year we closed for my strategies, uh, basically, you know, I had to look back at the beginning of 2022 and those deals were agreed uh, probably, uh, let's say, a few months earlier, so in 2021. Um, you know, we were seeing the, the market moving and therefore, you know, it was very difficult for us to accept um, the pricing, the, the the asking prices. So once again, you know, I am uh, more positive going forward. Uh, we have recently looked at deals um, uh, from UK pension funds, for example. You know, UK uh, have also faced very uh, a lot of turbulence in the last months, um, and, and therefore, you know, trying to to get uh, to approach to to this uh, pension fund that we are in the position to sell asset. Uh, the truth is that uh, we have not reached uh, the the value that we want to reach. But nevertheless, you know, we always uh, you know discuss with the team internally. We have a long pipeline uh, still live there, and we're not killing it because we see that uh, seller are becoming more and more reasonable, sort of say. So. Uh, um, uh, you know, we, we think that there could be two direction in which we are going to move. Uh, one direction is actually uh, has, has got a, a lot to deal with the fact that, uh, you know, in Europe, uh, alternative lenders are less, uh, let's say, present compared to, for example, US or UK. Okay. And therefore, the play that Nazir was, was, was mentioning before sometimes is made by value add players. And therefore, we think that uh, there's going to be, there are going to be uh, opportunity to partner with developers that uh, up until a few months ago, they didn't need us because they could go with banks. They don't go with alternative lenders or there's not enough alternative lenders out there to take them uh, down the line. Therefore, you know, we enter into the game, still manage to do some preferred equities or sort of deal. You know, we believe that that's going to be one of the areas in which we will succeed. And then the other area is, uh, uh, is basically, you know, what uh, also Joe has mentioned. Uh, so buying from people that are in need for to sell for whatever reason, um, but also most importantly, taking advantage of what I say before. And so thinking that, for example, if you buy um, an under-rented asset that you can hold for a couple of years, um, you know, then you can actually uh, start, uh, you know, improving the credential of this building, you know, repositioning this building in some months ahead and also taking advantage of the inflation in a way of the existing leasing. Um, so therefore, I think, you know, this, this will be the two areas in which uh, we will move uh, but the truth is that uh, we don't see um, a complete repricing yet, not to the point that we like, but we believe that it will happen. Thanks, Larry. Severin? Well, for the core strategy uh, in Europe, the last deal we close um, is a portfolio of four hyper markets in France. Um, one south of Paris, one close to the Swiss border, and two on the east southbound of the country. This is a Senna lease back, 12 year lease, um, with uh, a, a local, not local brand, but family group, family group quite, quite sustainable, very good covenant. Um, so this is offering very stable and long cash flow for the next 12 years. What we like in the deal is that it's probably pretty core for the for the very beginning of the of the lease but we expect to have um, asset management opportunities at middle term um, because as you know the, the model of a hypermarket is is moving a bit since the last years but this is what we like because we have the opportunity potentially in case they are downsized to completely review the format of the hypermarket and to potentially add more value on the other part of the hardware market that is going to be vacated, might be vacated because we are buying at 25% below the ERV 
for her hypermarket. So potentially much higher in case we can install some other kind of, of retail. But what we like in that deal also is that we were buying at a very low capital value, which is almost at replacement cost, if not below replacement cost. So very, very, I would say, very securing over the time. What we like also is that we have some this kind of asset management opportunities over the time. Um, but also, above all, we are buying in lands. And during the discussion we had with, with the, the vendor, uh, we, we secured the deal at the beginning of the year and we had the opportunity to reprice the deal during summer. But we tried to do a quite a clever renegotiation in not only downsizing, uh, repricing the existing um, portfolio, but also adding some land on what we initially bought. So that in case tomorrow we want to do something else on that lens, we are completely free to do it without potentially renegotiating again with the guys. We wanted to, to keep a little bit off lens around that. So this is the last deal we closed, but a month be, uh, uh, um, uh, before we also closed quite a big logistic deal in Sweden, north of Stockholm, which is a former printing um, uh, asset, which has become over the time not only a printing asset, but also last mile logistic and also a data center. Um, what we like in that asset is the diversification around this asset, different typology of use, but also the fact that we could, we have the possibility over the time to expand some of these tenants, not only on the logistics side, but also on the data center side. So negotiating with existing tenants to increase their and extend their lease in, in on additional areas, but also part of the land on which we can build some other potentially new logistics, standalone logistics or data center. Um, this area is a very um, one of the favorite areas of the municipality of Stockholm to increase the power of energy. So this is why the data center is there, and this is why we can potentially increase the footprint of the data center. And on top of that, for the logistics side, this is also a crucial area because we are going to increase all the road transport around that area by creating a by bypass between um, the city of Stockholm and that area. So what we like in our strategy is not to buy pure core asset. We need to have an end goal on what we buy in terms of asset management to potentially increase the value of this asset over the time. And this is why we always have an angle, but also long-term view on our asset. Really interesting, Severine. Thank you. Um, and from the enviable, enviable position this year from the debt side, um, I'm just curious, a, a recent deal you might have closed. Yeah, I, I think what we've tried to do is we've certainly tried to take um, maybe a little bit of a contrarian view uh, when putting money to work. And what I mean by that is in May of last year, still somewhat in the throes of the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of um, uncertainty around office, which still exists today. But we realized that not all markets, not all assets were created equal. And one of the best performing office submarkets in the country uh, at the time was Burbank, California, which again, maybe intuitively didn't make sense. I mean, Hollywood was shut down. The movie production sites were shut down. There wasn't a lot of activity, but it actually had lowering vacancy rates and increasing rents during the pandemic. It's one of the few markets in the entire country that was doing that. And that's mostly driven by the fact that when you looked at the expansion in that media space, so when you look at the expansion of Apple and Hulu and Netflix and Amazon Prime, all of these other content providers, they were going to this market because it had a niche, it had an expertise, it had the talent that was needed for all of these firms. And it's a fairly infill location, so you had some natural barriers to entry because there isn't that much you could build, you could redevelop uh, locations, but you couldn't necessarily build a lot of space. Um, we had the opportunity to finance an acquisition of a property. Uh, it was right across the street from where one of the major studios was building a new campus. The property had just lost a, a fairly sizable tenant, and there was some pressure on the rent roll uh, in terms of the existing tenancy not coming in, potentially being impacted by the pandemic, potentially losing more tenants. So the building had been high 80% occupied. By the time we financed it, it was 77%. And it quickly actually went down to uh, just under 50% uh, occupancy. But within six months, they had leased it back up to 91%. 
Uh, and then there's an LOI to, to one of the aforementioned sort of big names moving into the market that is potentially taking the balance of, of, of that space and, and bringing the property up to 100% occupancy. And that's all within sort of 18 months. So again, when we can provide financing that's thematic and consistent with what we're seeing on boots on the ground, right, that hyper-local focus uh, as to how some of these markets or some of these assets can outperform the broader market, it makes a lot of sense to us. And where others might see risk, we see we see great relative value. And that was uh that was a that was a win for for our fund. You know, throughout this this chat today, everyone sort of picked up on sort of office, right? And there strikes me as possibly some opportunity there. I mean, maybe Joe, it seems to be a winner takes all market. You know, from your perspective, sort of what are gonna be the winners and losers of of office, not just markets, but like physical attributes. Yeah, I mean, everybody talks about the have and have nots and, and you know, what are they and, and how is office going to perform? And it's really important today to look at leading indicators to figure out where those have and have nots may be. Um, you know, we look at two kind of really important um, uh, fundamentals. One is card swipes. So, you know, what's the physical occupancy, not just the least occupancy of an asset, um, but also subleasing availabilities. You know, what tenants are looking at downsizing within buildings who still have lease maturities? The challenge with the office sector right now is the pandemic, you know, happened a couple of years ago. Um, leases in office buildings go three, five, seven, 10, 15 years, and not all these tenants are failing. So it's going to take them time to work through their occupancy needs, which is which is the frustration that a lot of office landlords have right now. They, they want the answer. Um, you know, where's the stabilized occupancy? Um, it's pretty daunting right now. If you look at the U.S., the highest sublease availability rate we ever had um, over the period we've been collecting data was the second quarter of 2009, the previous highest point, was the second quarter of 2009 when uh, sublease and availabilities were 143 million square feet. Today, office sublease availabilities are 220 million square feet. So that's a daunting number. It tells you that there's more pain ahead for the office sector. Um, so we're very focused. And, and to Nasir's point, you know, I, I think we used to talk about market level rates for rents. What's the what's the office rent in Boston, New York? I've been doing this for 30 years. It was always a market level rate. Now people are starting to talk about asset level rents. If you have the right asset in a location, and not just the location, the location is important, but the physical elements. What are the physical elements, you ask, Greg? It's the it's the soul and character of a building. It's some it's a building that you walk into that you want to work in. You want to, you almost want to live in it, you want to play in it. You want to attract. You want to do science in it, right? You want to do science in well, experiments science, science, these days. Science, science is easy. The life science, <laughs> you know, you're not going to replicate life science at home. So that's why we like the life science area. Um, but but these tech buildings, you know, the decisions to be in these buildings are made less by the CEO and more by the HR department. Because you have to be able to attract an employee to come into the office, not just to come into the office, but to want to work at your company. The unemployment rate for the skilled office worker is under 2% right now. It's probably under 1%. And so you're really trying to steal talent in buildings. And if the employer sees the value in that building that you've created the right way, you've either redeveloped it, you bought it the right way, it's in the right location, the rent for that building can be 100% to 200% higher than the building across the street that doesn't fit that requirement. We all know we didn't do it, but SL Green built one Vanderbilt. They're signing leases at $300 a foot. And one Vanderbilt. There are plenty of buildings in Manhattan nearby that are having trouble leasing at forty to fifty dollars per square foot gross. It's new, it's modern, it's attractive. Um, yes, it's higher quality than a lot of these other buildings. But even some of the high quality buildings that don't have the amenities, the higher floor to ceiling, the light exposure, the amenities, the the rooftop decks, the the the, the conference centers within the buildings. Not just a fitness center, but a real gym, a gym that you want to go to like a lifetime. Uh, fitness or an equinox. So uh, these office buildings really have to be amenitized right in the right physical product. But we believe this bifurcation between the have and have nots will continue to to grow. And there's real value in the haves. And, and I think that value will continue to grow into the future. Thanks, Joe. Um, let's wrap up the, the 2023 outlook um, with maybe a little bit of a game. Um, let's pitch each other our best ideas for, for next year. One to two minutes, can't vote for yourself, I'm gonna to vote too, um, and, and see where we'd like to put capital next year. Uh, Valer, do you wanna kick us off? 
Yeah, you know, as I, I say before, you know, I think that, uh, um, you know, we'll see, we're going to see a lot of uh, discount pricing probably in land and therefore, you know, partnering with developer on buildable land in strategic location, the major European cities where we can take advantage of uh, entry at, uh, at cost level and having great opportunity to create demand-driven products on uh, uh, on the back of what Joe has just said, you know, it's exactly what's happening in, in, in Europe. Uh, you just need to have the best product. You just need to have the, the right product and then, you know, you will attract tenants and the big changes in the, in the, in the dynamics of the demand are actually uh, telling us that this is the, the way to go forward. Uh, Severine, how about you next? Yeah, I'm not sure I have the right answer in the current market, but <laughs> I really still believe in the um, in the diversification uh, in terms of jurisdiction, in terms of asset, um, and in any case, we have to play the cycle. So, I know, I'm not sure there is a right strategy, in, you know, in buying this kind of asset in these kind of countries. I think that there is, in my view, we need to be purely opportunistic. If we do see the right deals, you know, the right asset in the right location, as, you know, uh, Joe said, for example, on the office side, uh, and we do think it's the right pricing, we need to go, right? Um, and this is why it's crucial to have the, the team, you know, on the ground to make sure that we are monitoring very closely this market. And when we do think it's time, then it's time, right? Uh, we, we have to believe in our expertise. We have to believe in our experience. Um, and above all, I think we'll have to be brave because we will have to be brave in 2023. Somebody who I know is brave, Nasir, how about you? Well, I mean, I already saying the praises of construction lending, so I'm, I'm gonna actually pick something else besides that because I'm pretty sure that would win uh, if I if I proposed construction lending. But so out, outside of construction lending, I actually really like the hotel space, believe it or not. Um, they're, you know, typically hotels can be very susceptible to recessions and depending on your views on the recessions, you could take a pause in terms of, wanting to invest in hotel assets. But if you look at some of the statistics that are in the market today, uh, you've seen ADR lead this recovery, right? And if you look at the past, you know, two or three major recessions, that's historically been the case. But what we've seen is ADR recovery at a much faster clip than either the GSC or the dot-com bust or further back you go. the other thing that's actually somewhat attractive, and again, uh, it, it might be counterintuitive, is occupancy rates are probably going to take longer to recover. A lot of that has to do with some of the constraints around staffing for hotels. So it's really hard to fill back of the house, uh, even front of the house jobs at hotels. Uh, the uh, the average number of open positions per hotel is 50%, 57% higher than what it was at pre-pandemic levels. That just means you're going to have a natural constraint uh, in terms of available rooms because you can't service those rooms. Again, being able, allowing you to push sort of ADR. The ability to reset rents at hotels, right? You can capture that inflation in the ability and pass that cost through. So if you look at the correlation between ADRs and and CPI, it's almost 97%. So again, with this this persistent inflation, if you believe it's going to be there, you're going to be able to continue to push ADRs. RevPAR penetration uh, for resorts, we've all known sort of drive to leisure, leisure destinations have been outperforming for several years now. It's 127% above pre-pandemic levels, but you're seeing it now in the luxury space and the upper upscale space and the upscale space. So it's really across the board and travel is back. Um, TSA throughputs are, are, are in excess of 90% of pre-pandemic levels. And across the globe, travel is back. People are sort of getting back in, in, into that travel mode. So I think the hospitality sector, the hotel sector, could be a really, really interesting space to, to, to deploy money. Um, the only, again, the only place within hospitality I'd be cautious about is, is group, large group settings and convention center hotels are still slow, but they are recovering. But again, I think there are plenty of spots to pick within hospitality. Uh, with your capital, whether it's equity or debt, Joe, you buy in hotels. Or you have a different idea. You know, I, you know, I think this year just beat me again. I, I, I uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask you. Maybe we can split this between debt and equity, and you can pick a winner on both, just in case you don't, you don't pick me. Um, so, look, I, I like what Nir Sear said. Um, I actually like it, it's a bit contrarian. I, I like retail. Um, I've talked about what we're looking at for our value add uh, strategies, but. Retail is kind of interesting. I mean, experiential uh, retail, especially, 
Um, you know, people are still flocking back into retail. Uh, retail sales have been uh, have been improving. Um, if we go into a recession, yeah, they may stabilize or come down. Um, but you've you've also seen in a lot of these centers, um, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic and even going back to the impact of e-commerce, there were a lot of leases signed at really low rates. And now you're starting to see people come back and these really low rents are going to mark to market at an interesting level. So a lot of these opportunities you'll find if you look at the rent rolls of the inline stores, especially around these grocery anchored uh, tenants or even the experiential centers, you've got some real interesting mark to market opportunities out in two or three years. Um, and you can buy retail at a much higher cap rate than almost any other product type. So I think that the risk reward premium in retail is pretty attractive right now, and it might even get more attractive as we move forward. You know, by the power vested in me as a moderator of this panel, I think we're, we're not going to vote because those are all unique ideas. I like them. So um, we're just going to leave our listeners with interesting ideas to take into 2023. Um, so I, I think we'll leave it at that. So um, thank you all for joining us today. Um, you know, grateful for your attendance. And thank you to my panelists. It was, it was a pleasure. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with anyone on this panel, uh, please reach out to your bearings contact or us directly. We'd always be happy to have a conversation. Um, and we want to thank you for your continued partnership and have a, a very safe and happy holiday season. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to episode number seven of season seven of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.